The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. We're going to be jumping right into it with our first guest today. We're very pleased to have on the line Congressman Andy Harris of the 1st Congressional District of Maryland. Congressman Harris was a physician at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, medical officer in the Naval Reserve, and a state senator before coming to Congress. Congressman, welcome to the program. Oh, it's good to be with you. Congressman, this is Chuck. I want to start with two questions. The first one is a little more uh, practical. You're the only Republican member of the Maryland delegation. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. Do that's they... right. We'll ho- yeah, hopefully we'll get another <laughs> one, but I'm the only one now. Do they treat you, does the other members of the delegation treat you like a misfit toy, or are they good working with you? <laughs> it depends on the issue. You tell me what the issue is, I'll tell you how I get treated. Well, how about this? Regarding constituent issues in Maryland, do they work pretty well with you? Absolutely. No question. The senators work with me. Obviously, if, if we have a constituent who contacts my office from another uh, representative's office, yeah, they work They work with me on that. Again, on, look, on some issues, on a lot of issues, we're, we're going to uh, disagree. But on, on the issues that are important to our constituents and where we have commonality, we agree. Congressman, I, I'm glad we touched on constituent services because I, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough. How important is that? to just doing your job the right way, and how much can that separate, frankly, a a good Congress member from a great one? I I think it's very important. Now, honestly, to be honest with you, it shouldn't be that important because the federal government should work without the intervention of representative. But the problem is, is that it frequently needs it. Uh, Right now, for instance, passports are months and months behind. And if somebody has a, a trip coming up, uh, you know, we have to we have to advocate on their behalf with the Department of State. It shouldn't be that way. I mean, you pay a fee to process a passport. It should be processed in a timely fashion. Chuck, Chuck and I have a, have a good friend who is in green card limbo right now. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's a it's constant problem. And you're right. They shouldn't need intervention by someone like yourself. We're with Congressman Andy Harris from Maryland. Um, Congressman, so both your parents fled communist Eastern Europe to come to the United States. I find that background fascinating because I think it gives you a unique perspective on the immigration crisis our country faces now. How has that that given you an outlook on immigration, and what do you feel needs to be done? Sure. No, uh, my parents uh, came from uh, my mother's ethnic Ukrainian. It was, you know, fled Poland. Uh, that was part of Poland, uh, part of the Ukraine she was born in at the time. But it was, uh, again, the communists took it over after World War II. My father fled Hungary when the communists took it over. Uh, they, you know, met at a displacement camp in Austria, and they waited mm-hmm. literally years for the legal pathway to come to the United States. Uh, they came. They found the American dream uh, for them, and uh, you know, raised four boys here, all all successful, the absolute American dream. But they waited years in line uh, to come in legally, and uh, this is a great country where you know we accept uh, you know a million uh, immigrants every year legally, uh, and and that's that's what immigrants should expect. They should expect to respect our process, uh, and uh, you know, a, free, a lot of them don't. I mean, some do, like my parents did. Uh, so we're, we're a country of immigrants. I get it. But 
you know, you can't start out your trip to this country, uh, a country of law and order, by breaking the law. It's just not right. It, it should never, we should never allow it. What are some things we can do to stop this crisis? You know, for example, we had a guest on the show months ago talk about that if you don't come through a port of entry, and there's 327 in the country, you're immediately denied asylum. Former U.S. attorney yeah. in, uh, out right. of Yuma. Right. I mean, is that the type of type of legislation we need to start getting this under control? Uh, honestly, we don't even need legislation. The laws are on the books. We need an administration that will enforce the laws on the books. Uh, the last administration did. This administration doesn't. And what we've seen is roughly a tripling of the number of illegal immigrants coming in on this administration. Uh, we have plenty of laws. We don't need laws. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats want to pass laws because they want to legalize everybody who came in illegally. They want to legalize people who, and make citizens out of people who came in illegally. Uh, again, we just need to enforce our current laws. And uh, it, it's a shame. It's a, it's a real shame that, that we don't enforce our borders. Congressman, we recently had some hearings with Secretary Mayorkas on this issue. And one of the things I find so disconcerting with this administration is their officials will sit up there and flatly not merely deny the truth, but present a picture that is directly opposite of the reality. And I think a lot of folks in Arizona, Texas, Florida, New Mexico, California know the reality is not the picture he painted. That's absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, about a few months ago when there was that crisis in Del Rio where you had, you know, 10,000 people flooded and, uh, you know, one of, one, of the, uh, one of the broadcast outlets, you know, had, had a helicopter taking pictures of it. Uh, Americans realized there is actually chaos at the border. Uh, you know, I blame the media. The media should be, you know, it's, it's American media. It should be protective of our laws in this country. And, and it should actually expose the administration when they are not enforcing the laws of this country. Instead, they're, you know, most of the media is absolutely complicit. You know, one thing that came out in the media this week, uh, Chuck and, and Congressman Harris, that I, I, I almost swallowed my tongue when I saw it in the way they presented it. The media was talking this week about uh, the Border Patrol keeping crossers in cages in this heat their their entire talk was it's the border patrol that did that compare that to trump when it was he a was trump, in office, it was the trump it was administration, trump administration. yeah yeah it's incredible congressman you mentioned that we just need to enforce the laws on the book let's do a tutorial for our audience here because i don't think a lot of people as we've talked to people they really don't realize what's on the book it's sort of like these gun laws we have lots of gun laws in the book they always seem to be ignored and then a mass shooter who wasn't convicted of committing crimes with them you know, bypassed them. So talk about what laws we have on the book with immigration that you feel we need to enforce. Well, one of the one of the first ones is, is that if you're if you're applying for asylum, uh, you need to be detained until your asylum hearing. Uh, it's pretty simple. I mean, that, that's that's the law. The law is you're supposed to be detained. Now, when you when you allow, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people to cross the border, you don't have adequate detention facilities. The answer is don't allow any more people to cross the border instead of allow them across the border and then just release them into the interior of the country with perhaps the promise that they will one day show up for their asylum hearing years into the future, because literally we have a backlog of a couple of million cases. Uh, that's not the way it should be done. You know, you could, interpret, you could easily interpret the law to say you can't cross into the, into the United States unless we have a detention uh, facility that has a bed for you, and if we don't, and that you get a prompt asylum hearing. Uh, we don't have enough detention facilities. We don't have enough judges. Uh, so we have a, a years-long backlog with people being admitted into the interior 
with literally just the promise that, yeah, I'll show up, I'll show up for my asylum hearing. And of course, the statistics are the vast, vast majority never show up. And of the ones that do show up, the vast majority are, in fact, denied asylum. Let's talk about um, many here about the IRS whistleblowers. What have you found interesting about the IRS whistleblowers that came out this past week? Well, the, I think you know the, the fifty thousand foot picture is it's amazing because when the whistleblowers, you know, uh, two years ago the Democrats loved whistleblowers. They respected it. Oh my gosh, you can't say anything bad about a whistleblower because they were whistleblowers who were blowing the whistle on the Trump administration. Now you've got whistleblowers who I think. Any objective person would say, yeah, these are legitimate whistleblowers. They are, you know, some of the informants, legitimate informants, and yet they're, they're supposed to be distrusted now. Uh, this is, uh, the hypocrisy of that is just, is particularly stunning. Uh, I don't, I think the average American has come to, to come to understand that there are two systems of justice, you know, one for Hunter Biden and one for everybody else in the country. Uh, you know, the judge, the judge's decision yesterday to deny the plea bargain shows just how true that is. Uh, that here's a here's here's a man accused on a gun charge, where if the, according to the plea bargain, if he keeps his nose clean for a couple of years, doesn't even get doesn't even get a felony conviction on a gun charge on his record. That's pretty amazing. That's all I can say. And then people and people that really bothers Americans. Americans above all would like to believe that there is a uh, uh, that you know Lady Justice wears a blindfold, but it's pretty clear peeking out from under that blindfold for some people, especially if your last name is Biden. Congressman, I, I agree 100 percent with everything you just said, the, except that the American people really understand and know this. One of the things I, I keep having conversations with Republicans about is that when you're talking to your Democrat and independent neighbors who aren't watching Fox News and things to the right of Fox News, there has been no coverage of any of this. No. I mean, no coverage of the whistleblowers, no coverage of Hunter Biden, no coverage of the border hearings. There's no coverage anymore of anything that is detrimental to the left uh, point of view. Well, you know, but that, that's only the last in a long string of, uh, of incidents that tell the same story. So I think most people know, and you'd ask most people, that, yeah, you know, if you went and protested at a school board, uh, yeah, the FBI actually began to open files, domestic terrorism files on you. I think people just understand that if you are part of the administration or agree with the administration, there's one way you're treated. If you disagree, there's another way. And the Hunter Biden incident is just the latest in a string. How much should Republicans be really featuring this in all the campaigns coast to coast coming up for, for next year? Because quite frankly, when you look at all of this, the level of corruption and incompetence I can't point to a single area right now where the Biden administration is succeeding in their policy. Uh, look, I agree. I mean, you know, the biggest laugh is they somehow claim Bidenomics is working out great. Well, I don't know. I go to the grocery store and I don't think it's working out so great. I, I go I go to the gas station. I don't think it's working out so great. So, I, I mean, I'm not sure I understand, uh, you know, wh where they see that uh, coming from. Well, there was a. Uh, I saw a news clip today from a liberal economist that said that the reason people are not impressed with the economy is that real wages went up for manufacturing and middle class workers during Trump administration. They're not doing that now, and so it's not affecting the people that they think it affects. And so then what they do is they take their paycheck, they go to the grocery store, they pay more for gas, or pay more for groceries, or pay more for utilities. Everything's gone up five, ten, fifteen, twenty percent. 
That's right. So, so to compare the Trump administration, in the Trump administration, wages went up faster than prices because inflation was low and wages grew. In the Biden administration, wages are going up way slower than inflation. So, in fact, your paycheck doesn't go as far, and everybody knows it. I mean, again, you know, you, you can talk all you want, but people, they take their paychecks, and they go out, and they try to, uh, you know, they try to buy things. Too much. They fully understand that this economy is very, very different from the one uh, before Joe Biden took office. Yeah, enormously different. We have just about 30 seconds before we go to break here. We're going to be coming back with more from Congressman Andy Harris of Maryland's 1st Congressional District here in just a moment. Folks, if you want to keep in touch with him, uh, you can follow him on Twitter at RepAndyHarrisMD. That's at RepAndyHarrisMD. Uh, and definitely make sure you check him out. He's doing fantastic work there. Uh, Congressman, when we come back, we're going to be talking more on spending in the economy also. Folks, stay tuned. Breaking Battlegrounds back in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. We're continuing on with Congressman Andy Harris here in just a moment. But folks, we were talking about the economy. And if you're concerned about the economy and about your portfolio, you need to check out our friends at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. They have an opportunity for you to earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. That's right, 10.25% fixed. Phenomenal opportunity, not tied to the stock market. The Biden economy goes down. The Biden economy goes down. You continue to earn 10.25%. Check them out. Again, that's investyrefi.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. With Congressman Andy Harris. Congressman, I want to take a step away from what we've been talking about for a moment. You, you, you are a doctor. Um, you work from John Hopkins. During COVID, did your colleagues from both sides of the aisle come and talk to you about your opinion on it? Well, I will tell you that uh, certainly from my side of the aisle, they did. Uh, you know, my opinion was that uh, we didn't take the right course of action during COVID. So a lot of the members from the other side of the aisle uh, didn't uh, come talk to me about it. But it became pretty clear early on that this, first of all, that this was this was a function of the Chinese. There's no question about it. It came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's amazing that there's still not there's near total universal acceptance of that now by the federal government, but it's not universally accepted yet, and that's dangerous because we need to know how dangerous China is and how they lied to us during the at the beginning of this pandemic. Congressman, you're, you're a doctor, so one of the things that I've been dismayed about since the in you know since COVID is that our public health response was awful. I mean, it was just awful. But there doesn't seem to be any real effort to go back and look and say, "Hey, we need to redo our plans and reconsider how we're going to approach these things, how we interact with the public, all of that sort of stuff." I mean, they basically got everything wrong. 
but but aren't appearing to admit it or prepare to next time, hopefully, you know, long, long time from now, but whenever that may be, uh, to do better. Is there is there effort underway in Congress or in the federal government to really look at how we can do things differently than we did this last time? Uh, there certainly should be, and we're certainly trying to steer it that way, you know, the Republican majority in the House. But I'll tell you, there's still denial among the federal agencies. They deny that they did anything wrong. And look, they didn't get everything wrong. Uh, uh, honestly, if you were a high-risk patient, you were a senior, you had multiple, uh, you know, comorbidities, as we call them, and, uh, you know, you were, you, were, you were a sick person, the vaccines were, that, that was probably a good idea, because the vaccines right. didn't prevent the disease, they did decrease the severity. But very early on, we knew that there were two categories of people, high risk and low risk. And if you were in low risk, there really was no need for the vaccine. And yet the government continued to push them. That was probably when that occurred, that the government didn't give you a choice. Because, look, if you want if you're low risk and you want to take the vaccine, God bless you, your choice. When the government stopped giving you a choice, that's when I knew this government was out of control on this and they were not following science. They were just they were just going to deny that they had gotten something wrong. And, and in medicine, that's very dangerous. You know, if you realize you've made the wrong diagnosis, make the right one and begin the treatment on the right one. You don't just continue that in the past saying, well, I'm really not going to admit that I made the wrong diagnosis because that doesn't end well for the patients. Well, it's, I, I'm going back. It's amazing to me that members on both sides of the aisle, especially Democrats, didn't come to you. So there's, you know, there's, there's 19, members, 19 members of the Senate and the House who are doctors. There's 15 in the House, which of those 10 are Republican, and the Senate, all of them are GOP. I, I just find it appalling that they're not willing to talk to a colleague and say, you know, hey, um, Congressman Harris, what do you think about this based on your background? I, I just That's just so strange. Well, again, you know, they, they made everything partisan. Uh, you, know, it, you know, if you agreed with President Trump on anything, you were wrong. Uh, it didn't make a difference whether you're a physician or not. You were wrong. Uh, that's not that's just not the way it should be. And literally to a person, I mean, I knew all the physicians, all of them uh, who were Republicans, literally every single one of them knew that we were heading in the wrong direction. Uh, and, and yet it, the what every the problem was what there were there were only a couple of doctors that were appearing every day. You know, their names were Burks and Fauci. Right. And uh, Dr. Fauci clearly had a conflict of interest here because he held responsibility for the Wuhan Institute of Virology doing some of that gain-of-function research. And I think, again, there is this, and it may come to light, uh, you know, in, in the future, that there was a kind of a collaboration uh, with the NIH and, and people with the NIH uh, with, this, uh, with this denial that uh, this, was, uh, this, this came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, partly because they were funding it. They didn't want to, again, they didn't want to admit they made a mistake. You make a mistake, just admit it. People in the end are much more forgiving if you just admit it rather than double down on, on, the, uh, on the misleading, the misleading uh, evidence, and that's what they were doing. And, and people they, would have they, understood that. I mean, that's the thing. They all knew this was new. People were caught off guard. They knew that. I mean, it's just so simple to say, okay, look, this is what we've learned. We need to change course. Absolutely. Again, the conflict of interest here was that uh, obviously the NIH and, and the uh, National Institute uh, that uh, Dr. Fauci headed Actually, you know, funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And again, you know, again, you, you know, at some point, I, and part of it is that Dr. Fauci was a little naive, and a lot of scientists are naive, uh, believe that, well, you know, we can trust the Chinese scientists. Well, no, you can't, because they, you know, if, if you, to succeed as a Chinese scientist, you have to be a member of the 
Chinese Communist Party, and you have to do what you're told. Uh, that's not science. Science is when you follow the scientific truth, not do what you're told. And again, it, it, I think it's just being naive about the ways of the world and communism. Again, with my parents having come from communist countries, I fully understood what was going on here. The communists were lying about it. Uh, and, and again, there, there are people who refuse to believe that somehow a scientist would lie. No, that's not the way it works in communist countries. Yeah, one of the things, so we just touched on China, and that's kind of been one of the, the our running themes on this show. We are in a period of contest between great nations, and it doesn't seem like we fully comprehend that that is the case here in the United States. I agree with you, and, I, and, and the evidence of it is uh, if you go into one of the large container ports in the country, you see ships loaded with a thousand containers from China. We are, we are literally funding our enemy. When we purchase things from China, we are funding our enemy. And uh, this is just a bad, it's just a bad choice. I don't know how we end it. I think President Trump, uh, through some of his tariff and trade policies, was getting in the right direction with it. And then, of course, the Biden administration just whistles past the graveyard. Yeah, absolutely. We have just about a minute and a half before we go to break. Congressman, anything coming up on the docket that you think people should be keeping an eye on? Well, the most important thing is, is, the, uh, is the appropriations, the spending struggle that's going on in Washington right now. Again, uh, many people in Washington, honestly, on both sides of the aisle are just addicted to a deficit spending. But when we're running deficits over a trillion dollars a year, I think the average person understands, you know, they take out a home mortgage, they take out a car loan. Uh, the proviso is you're actually going to pay it back. Uh, there are people in Washington who believe that somehow you can borrow trillions of dollars without ever having a plan to pay it back. Uh, that doesn't work. It, it doesn't work. That doesn't it, end well. It's never worked. <laughs> nope. And never will. And never will for mathematical no, reasons. No. Never will. Yeah. Math, <laughs> math is a real stinker, I have found out. <laughs> it's like science. It's a real stinker, you know. <laughs> Those absolutes, Democrats just don't want the uh, no, binary answers don't. to anything no, at this don't. point. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, folks, we want to thank uh, Congressman Andy Harris for taking his time this morning. We're really pleased to have him on the program. You can follow him at Rep. Andy Harris, MD on Twitter. And Breaking Battlegrounds, we'll be back with more in just a moment. We have a, we have a hot couple of segments coming up for you. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host. I'm Sam Stone. Chuck Warren actually stepping out of studio because in a certain way, this next couple of segments are a continuation of some segments we did a few weeks ago. So we have Michelle Ugenti Rita back in studio here Hello. in Chuck's place. Thank you again, yep. Michelle. And in studio with us today, and thank you for joining us, uh, Professor Brooks D. Simpson, ASU Foundation Professor of History at Arizona State University, member of the College of Integrated Sciences, Sciences and Art Faculty, a member of the Honors Faculty at Barrett, the Honors College during spring 2017 semester. He serves as Associate Dean at Barrett's downtown campus. Uh, so, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. 
I'm really glad to be here, Sam. And right now I have to give the disclaimer that I am speaking for myself and not as a representative of Arizona State. Absolutely. And folks, that's an important distinction. If he were if we wanted to get him in here speaking from Arizona State, we'd have to go through them. And that's a that's a complicated process. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate your willingness to step out here and speak on it. When we were talking last time, Michelle, right. we were talking about an incident surrounding the Barrett College, an event, a uh, health, wealth, and happiness event featuring some conservative speakers that brought some controversy to ASU, and uh, there's since been a rather great deal of fallout. After we did that segment, uh, Professor Simpson said on our Twitter, hey, you guys are wrong. Said we got it wrong, so we're, we're having him in here today, uh, and we thank him for the, the courage to come in here, because not everyone is willing to do that. And tell us how and why we were wrong, and we want to get into that more in just a minute. But first, uh, start out, Professor, with a little bit about you and your background. Where you know how how did you get into teaching in the first place? Um, I enjoyed history. Uh, I was a historian. I've written some books and done some other things as that goes. My concentration is in American history, uh, especially the presidency, uh, military history, political history, civil war and reconstruction, pretty traditional stuff. Which, so is there a book? I, I saw you've written a couple of them. Is there one of them that you're like, hey, this is my best piece of work? Uh, the one for which I'm most known is uh, the first of a two-volume biography, Ulysses S. Grant, called Ulysses S. Grant, Triumph Over Adversity, 1822 to 1865. And I, I ha- I'll admit I haven't read that yet, but I am actually going to order it because I'm a huge U.S. Grant fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's one of the more underreported uh, figures from the Civil War and the post-war period, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But, uh, okay. So you grew up, where'd you grow up? Uh, Long Island. In New York, um, I am, unlike you, a born and bred Yankees fan and also a New York <laughs> Islanders fan, uh, but um, we can still talk. All right, folks, yeah, I, I'm not sure about that. We may need to throw him out of the studio before we continue any further. Yankees fans are not allowed in here. Um, so, okay, so you started out uh, in New York, Long Island. Uh, where'd you go to school? Uh, undergraduate University of Virginia, Graduate School, University of Wisconsin, uh, Worked at the University of Tennessee, then at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Came out here in uh, 1990. Okay, so 1990 pretty much makes you a native Arizonan at this point. It sure looks that way. 70%. Did you know, Michelle, 70% of our state was born elsewhere? No, I was born here. Really? So I guess I'm, yeah, not the the norm. You're them? But I'm not the norm in a lot of different ways, but yeah, I'm one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I, I didn't realize until the other day it was that high. I think that's yeah. a pretty extraordinary number. Um, it's one of those things I laughed at, I think, in campaigns when you see someone come out. I'm a native Arizonan and my opponent only moved here. It's like, well, most of the I, I voters know. just moved here, too. So Yeah, well, we're kind of a melting pot within a melting pot, Arizona. Yeah, Very, very true. We've got just about two minutes before we go to break. We're going to get into the, the specific story, why we have Professor Simpson in the studio. Uh, touch on that a little bit more. But before we go, we'll just kind of lay out Let's the basics mm-hmm. of it. Michelle, do you want to kind of just lay out the, the basic what happened? 
Well, there was a uh, an event hosted um, by uh, a organization organization associated with the Barrett College. They were bringing in guest it's speakers. T.W. Lewis Center. T.W. Lewis Center, correct. Uh, they were bringing in guest speakers. Uh, this w- event was being advertised to anyone who wanted to attend, but primarily geared for the, the students of the college. Um, and there was subsequently a letter signed by the faculty of that college um, a, a majority, but not all of the faculty. Correct, correct. A majority, but definitely not all. The, outlining their um, frustration and uh, opposition uh, to hosting a open event with uh, speakers that they uh, Charlie labeled. Kirk, Dennis Prager, uh, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki. Saki, right, that they and they labeled these individuals purveyors of hate, and they outlined in the letter why they disagreed with the choice of the college to promote um, such an event for students to attend. And, and then subsequently there were some blowback and repercussions with uh, Ann Atkinson, who helped organize that event, being let go from her position. Uh, and then also the director of the, the Gamage Center being let go from their position Correct. as well. So we're going to get into now all of the fallout from that. Uh, our take, Professor Simpson's take, when Breaking Battlegrounds comes back in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Sam Stone. In studio with me today, my co-host, Michelle Ugenti-Rita, for the second half of the program, and Professor Brooks D. Simpson of the ASU. Of, of ASU. Uh, folks, but before we get into our next segment, I've got to tell you a little bit more about our friends from Y-Refi. They are doing a fantastic job creating a tremendous investment opportunity with an up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. That's right, 10.25% fixed rate of return. And by investing with Y-Refi, you help them... <clears throat> You help them refinance distressed student loans, getting students who have fallen behind on their private student loan payments back on track, getting their lives back in order, and you make money. doesn't get any better than that. Check them out, investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Okay, continuing on now with Professor Simpson, Michelle Gentry rita in studio. So we've laid out on the program what we have been told happened or what we believe happened. Tell us why we were wrong. Well, you're not wrong so much as it's incomplete. And that, that's what I okay. said that I think um, uh, Ms. Atkinson's account is incomplete and some of the statements made since then. What are, what are some of the things that are incomplete? Okay. Um, first of all, there was a history of friction between the Lewis Center and Barrett from its inception. That this is not something that what's the, what what was the basis of that friction? There were administrative issues, and there was a perception among the faculty of donor overreach on the part of Mr. Lewis. May I ask, but what does that have to do with um, the faculty's position on the health, wealth, and happiness event that they sponsored? 
Well, I think that what happened is when, when Ms. Atkinson went ahead and had this much more public program, so this was not student programming anymore, but a public presentation, um, uh, a majority of the Barrett faculty said, we don't like this program, not because not of its subject matter, and I think that's been misunderstood, but because they didn't like Dennis Prager and Charlie Kirk in particular. Um, and um, they expressed their opposition to having Barrett associated with those two speakers' names in what was originally a private petition to the dean. So this was not originally supposed to be uh, for public release. But who, who, who cares? Why, why should we care about what the faculty think about these individuals and their ability to express themselves to students who want to attend an event? matters who you are, whether you want to care or not, but the fact is that they were expressing their opinion about these speakers and about being associated with those speakers. They wanted, in fact, just to be disassociated from the Lewis Center. They had no problem with the, the programming, so to speak. They had a problem with the speakers. Um, and so to that say is that, the programming, the, well, what, the speakers, because in their letter, which, you know, they, they talk about um, how the event runs contrary to the core values of the Barrett uh, community, and then they call the speakers purveyors of hate. Uh, they say that this platform legitimizes the speakers, legitimizes their anti-intellectual and anti-democratic views. I mean, I think that's more than just expressing a dislike or displeasure for the speakers, but really trying to, in my opinion, um, well, and, and squash the ev event. And, and I want to add a second part to that question is, why should any professor or group of professors be out front saying we don't want students to have a choice to go listen to someone who has very different views, even views they may find hateful? I mean, this is this is the difference between the definition of free speech that has traditionally been in this society, which says the answer to speech you don't like is more speech. But, Sam, they didn't say that the event shouldn't be held. They just wanted to have Barrett disassociated. Well, they, they want the university to not be involved with the event. No, no. They just wanted Barrett not to be involved with the event. They understood that the event was going to take place. And they were they observed in that petition not crossing that line. Uh, that they said, we're not opposed to the event being held. We're opposed to being associated with it. What what is the distinction there? I I, I mean I, they're, they're kind of one of the same. Not not being associated with it. I mean how how? My question is, you know, it, it is why even opine? This is not a mandatory event. It's uh, it can be attended by everyone and anyone. Um, it, well, why? And, and and this is not. And the, the other part to this, professor, is that this is not an isolated incident. We, this is a, there are now becoming a chain of these type of incidents, not only across the country, but even right here at ASU, with people who objected, to a bunch of professors, really pulled the exact same thing in regards to an event with Don Critchlow's, uh, uh, I forget the name of the center, but uh, Don Critchlow's center where they were bringing in Jason Chaffetz mm -hmm. and Andy Biggs to speak. I mean, you're talking about a former congressman and a sitting congressman. And they said, oh, we can't hear them. And they gave the same reasoning, the same, oh, this is hate, this is this, this is that. Um, how is this not just them being too weak to, to listen to and then stand up to opinions they don't like? I wouldn't frame it that way. They didn't say that they were going to stand up to opinions they didn't like. And again. Well, no, they, they, they didn't stand up to opinions they didn't like. They went back door and said, hey, 
We're not going to listen to it. We're not going to pro- we're not going to propose an alternate event with different speakers. What they did is say we want to make it difficult for them to speak. That's your reading of their petition. That is not my reading of their petition. And this goes back to I think what you said. What's the difference? There's a difference between saying I don't want to be associated with that and saying I don't think this event should take place on campus. If they said, I don't think this event should take place on campus and we are protesting this event and we, sh- we, we think these speakers should be disinvited and the event canceled, then that's a much more serious issue of uh, faculty. Well, I, I mean, I feel like they sort of learned their lesson the first time because Crow stepped in to defend Critchlow's program and allow it con- to continue when they did try to cancel that one entirely, right? So to me, this is they're, they're just finding whatever line they can defend, the farthest line out there they can to suppress speech. But was it the Barrett faculty you did with the Center of the, for Study of Well, th- there were a bunch of names that were... Adjoined. I mean, I, and it wasn't 100% the same group, but a bunch of the same people, same professors were part of the objection to both. But it wasn't identified as a Barrett group. They may have been acting it, as it a was, It was a professor group. I, 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 well, but there are different professors. Right. This, in this case, though, they, it was just a broad group of professors and, that and, were objecting. And that's a different thing. I, I know Don Critchlow very well, a former colleague of mine. Uh, that's a different issue than what we're talking about in terms of what happened with Barrett in this February 8th presentation. So there I think the Barrett faculty said, we don't want to be associated with this, but you can have the event. Now, some people may not see a distinction there, others do. It's what happened after that that became even more interesting. Um, Talk about students being intimidated, which if true would be quite serious. Well, I mean, there's a lot about this that, quite frankly, I, I, depending on exactly what happened, I find kind of offensive. I mean, ASU released a statement. There were flyers for this event put up around campus. ASU released a statement said, if anyone removed flyers, it was not at the direction of ASU or Barrett leadership. Um, But we also have evidence from who was taking those down that it was campus employees who went around and took down all that those advertising materials. And that's what I think this investigation is going to try to determine what really did happen there. Because um, we have differing accounts of what's going on uh, from from differing sides. And, and there are people uh, watching this who are not in either camp who are saying, boy, there's a lot of um, confusion here about what did happen, and, and this did not turn out well in part because people didn't explore alternatives post event. Well, what is the confusion? I mean, I read this letter, which is off the chart. I, I, I mean, the, 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 the kind of pompousness this letter. Uh, cut, cut, I, read a few of the passages because I think this is relevant. Um, um, Our collective efforts to promote Barrett as a home of inclusive excellence demands that we distance ourselves from the hate that these provocateurs hope to uh, to legitimize by attacking or attaching themselves to the Barrett name. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Here's here's the thing. I don't I don't see it as all that different to say the Barrett name versus the ASU name. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is say, hey, these people should not be speaking to our students because they're hateful according to these individuals. Right. So what do you say to that? I say that is not what the petition letter says. And we'll go back to that again and again. So we're going to disagree on that. 
Uh, I don't see them as wanting to stop the event because they understood that would have violated free speech protections. I do say, yeah, they wanted to disassociate themselves from Lewis. And, and frankly, you know, one of the questions should be, why would Lewis want to stay with Barrett after this? You could set up a center for free speech or for career development. I mean, this was not supposed to be a free speech center. This was a, a personal development center. Set up the Lewis Center outside of Barrett. No one seems to have explored that. Um, well, why should they? You could still because have, you have a handful of professors who have their. I, I mean, would it, to, I, to I me, that that seems like a cop out because at the end of the day, what they, would these professors not be objecting to the exact same? Let's say the exact same curriculum was put on by a different center. We'll, we'll create it's the T.W. Lewis Standalone Center. But part of, part of free speech, Sam, is the ability to object. The ability sure, to the ability to object, and and and, 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 and I'm not. You know, going to vouch for the wording used in this petition. That's that's why I don't sign petitions, because I don't want someone else pretending to speak to me for me. All right, I watched the event on tape. Um, it seemed to me to be, except for a few comments about the controversy, a pretty straightforward event. Um, yeah, I mean that's part of it too. That this was not a political event in the way these speakers normally focus on their things. So. They were adjusting their message, but it's like, okay, if you if you, we've said something you don't like, then that forbids you from coming on and talking about anything else either. Uh, to, 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 to me, this is the perf- this is the faculty thinking that they're smarter than everyone else, and this is them uh, disguising their prejudices and their biases under the guise of intellectualism. And that's what this this that's what this letter says that they're smarter. The people who have opposing views are dumb, and they shouldn't be exposed to these people that they've labeled as provocateurs and uh, hate mongers. Okay. And 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 that is concerning. That's actually very concerning in our democratic uh, I, United I would, States of I would, America. I would say that I I would I would be more apt a professor to agree with your take on this if it if we didn't have things like uh, students who had come forward to say uh, that in their you know as soon as this controversy broke they went to a class and the the professors in that class spent 30 minutes uh, dedicated to talking about the potential dangers associated with the event and quote how the T.W. Lewis Center has given into its donors philosophy by hosting a dangerous speech which have been debunked through speakers who have propagated hate towards various minority communities and who undermine getting an education in the first place. I'm sorry, isn't the point of getting an education to be exposed to ideas that aren't yours? Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's address two things here. First of all, the faculty member who was supposed to have done that has actually issued a denial that that account is accurate. So that's going to be part of an investigation of what went on in that classroom. We're talking now about a single faculty member, not all of the signers of the document 39 and all acting like this in class. Um, and, and I think you're right about, you know, how do people talk about each other? So I do know that one of the professors who is supportive of Miss Atkinson uh, has gone ahead and declared that anyone who disagrees with him is showing contempt for God. Now, I find that a, a chilling piece of speech myself, that my, my faith is being questioned 
by someone who disagrees with me. Okay, I think you you digress. I think we need to go back to this. We, we've got just one minute before we we come to the end of our on air program, folks. You uh, be sure to tune in, Professor. Do you have a few more minutes? Sure. Fantastic. We're going to continue on in our podcast segment because I think this is a really important discussion. Uh, we want to we want to really dig into this some more, folks. Make sure you stay tuned for that podcast seg- seg- segment. You can also get all of our past podcasts at BreakingBattlegrounds.vote. Check us out there. Follow us on social media, Substack, Spotify, all the good places to find your podcasts. Breaking Battlegrounds is there. And again, you're not going to want to miss the rest of this show. So be sure you're subscribed and you get our you know get our podcast in your email box. You don't have to do anything else. Breaking Battlegrounds back on air next week. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. All right, welcome to the podcast-only segment of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Sam Stone, in studio with me today, the lovely Michelle Ugenti-Rita is taking Chuck's place so we can continue on with the conversation. Michelle and I started on the air a few weeks ago and in studio, a man who, and I always appreciate this, quite frankly, who dared to challenge us because that, you know, there's lots of people who will tell you to, and thank goodness, Jeremy, and we're in the podcast segment, I can say it. They'll just tell you to go fuck off when you're online, right? It's, you know, some poop emoji, poop emoji, <laughs> finger emoji. Um but uh, you didn't do that. I appreciated the discussion, and I appreciate having you in here, Professor Brooks Simpson of the uh, of ASU. Uh, we really enjoy the, the chance to talk about this. When we were before we went to break, we we're talking about there was one professor who uh, reported, according to their student, and they've denied this. Uh, the professor has denied this. Mm-hmm. Spent a bunch of time in class, um, really, you know, kind of dissuading students from attending this event and kind of trying to make sure that they were lined up against it. Um, unfortunately, I mean, we do have two other students who have said more or less the same thing about other classes. So that that one I was referring to was a professor, uh, Dr. Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one uh, student uh, who was – I, I have no idea what CWHAL 101 is, some uh, human events class uh, by a professor Soares got the same thing. Uh, and then a second student who said the same thing about the, the Dr. Miller's statement. Mm-hmm. So I I don't think it, it – I mean, obviously you said ASU is looking into this. They're investigating what happened in these classes. Um, but it doesn't seem like it was just that one incident. I mean, this was a really concerted effort by the 37 signees to make to try to, to – if, if nothing else, disrupt this event. I, I haven't seen evidence of that. I've seen one professor, Dr. Miller, uh, discussed extensively in two of those three – um, accounts. Professor Soares, uh, it seems to have been a between-class discussion from which the student assumed other things were going on in the class. That doesn't always happen. Students walk out, they ask you other things, and you give your opinion. They know it's your opinion. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean what's going on in the classroom um, is an ideological rant. Um, 
I mean, to characterize the, this faculty as some sort of radical Marxist group, and Marxist has been, I mean, no, I, a lot of those faculty are more like Rachel Marx in terms of their live and let live <laughs> attitude towards this than uh, they are towards Karl Marx. Um, and you see, this is where, you know, I, I'm saying that sometimes faculty behave ways that outrage people. And I would argue that if you don't want to be ticked off, don't go on a college campus because there'll be something that will tick you off. Well, but but, but, but who? But I, let me just ask: because do you think the letter signed February first by by faculty was designed to disrupt the event? No. No. What did, no. what was it designed to? Do? I think it was designed to start to move the uh, Lucas Center outside of Barrett and say we we cannot have this kind of programming. The Lewis Center programming beforehand was so internal that it didn't get this kind of public scrutiny. But but who are the professors to be the arbiter of what's right and what's wrong and what's hate and what's not and what people can listen to and what they can't listen to and what's described as anti-democratic or anti-intellectual? Um, who are why are they the ones that get to? be the judge of that. I wouldn't frame it that way, first of all. They are expressing their dissent and dissatisfaction and criticism of speakers, all right, and, and not the topic. As far as uh, what goes on afterwards, after they had spoken, it's really up to the Barrett leadership, the deans, uh, uh, to deal with this. The faculty had their say. They organized their counter workshops or whatever you want to call them, and in a sense that is an exercise of free speech. Um, just as the three professors, including Don Critchlow, who wrote in response to this, they were exercising their free speech. I didn't like that they characterized this petition as trying to shut down the event altogether because the Barrett faculty was actually very careful to say, no, the event could go on. We don't want to be associated with it anymore. Well, but so I, I think they, they're very smart in towing a line they knew if they crossed would, would make it more difficult for them. So I, I get that. But at the same time, there is an underlying issue with this that we're seeing at universities across the country, which is an intolerance of speech deemed anathema to the left. And we've seen this at, at with speaker after speaker after speaker. And for professors, what makes this different to me, when, they're led, when those things are led by students, I think you kind of just got to shrug and roll your eyes and say we need to do a better job of trying to get through to these students. But when it's led by professors, uh, the, the, the fundamental issue behind all of this is that we've reached a place where, what is it, I think 90% of, of positions at ASU require a diversity statement in your, in your application now. I'm unaware of that, okay? And, and I, I know that, that that accusation has been made. Um, and I do know that in Barrett there is a request for a statement that that's been produced. So um, you know they didn't have DEI statements when I came in in 1990. So I, well, and that's my point is like why why all of a sudden do we need to do do universities and a subset of professors? It's not all, but a subset of professors at those universities feel the need to limit the speech that they don't like or that they deem hateful rather than contend against that speech. Because to me, what they're demonstrating to the students is not a commitment to academic excellence. 
an intellectual pursuit. What they are demonstrating that to, to the students is intellectual cowardice. I, I understand that, and and that's a, a, a good broader conversation. Now, for multiple years, and I, I you know, I think I informed you folks that uh, I served as the chair of the committee on academic freedom and tenure. So, academic freedom is important to me, and freedom of speech is important to me. And I understand the desire of the contest of ideas uh, in, in 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 the public square. Um, so I can understand the, the concern um, and the need for discussion of whether such statements, uh, DEI statements, are the kind of thing we want to have in the environment we have, that it's hard. It is up to President Crow and others to justify a commitment to the University of Chicago statement and, and these hiring requirements, okay? But that's, that gets outside of what we're talking about, a very specific event, and a very specific response. And I understand that you're saying, is this the tip of an iceberg? Well, I, I think that is the, the basic problem that underlies what happened with this health, wealth, and happiness event. The basic problem is that we are, we are, we are accepting now more and more of professors who are anti, it's anti-free speech. I don't know who the we are. And well, I, I'll, I'll, we'll do these. I mean, I, they put their name on it. We'll just talk with these professors. I mean, right. they're right here. We'll just start with this list. And since it's local in ASU, I mean, I, I think we're overcomplicating this. This was an event with national speakers designed to communicate, um, you know, certain points of view to college kids and others who are invited. And the professors took it upon themselves, not all of them, but the majority of them in the college took it upon themselves to label this um, a hate event. And with with the expressed motivation to disrupt it, what other motivation would there be other than to stop it and squash it? I again, that's something that you kind of see in China I, and in other third and, world and, countries. And that's where this argument begins to when you don't like something, boundaries. you squash it when you don't like the point of view expressed by someone else. Instead of having an intellectual conversation and trying to persuade someone with your argument, you label them, and then you try to stop it. I, I think, you know, you're, you, you make a point about labeling, and so what I've heard this faculty, again, labeled as Marxists, they've come under attack. They were put on a professor watch list. Um, okay, and then that person harassed. who did that, and that person who did that can come in here and you can talk to them. I'm just talking about this letter. I didn't put anybody I, I, on I, I, I understand. But, but that's why you opined. I mean, you, you went on Twitter and you opined and we're giving you a platform. That's right. And so defend it. My, what your, my, what your my comments point are. on Twitter was that the story that you were getting from Ms. Atkinson was incomplete. So... Let's understand what I did say and what I haven't said. Now, you've characterized labeling as counterintellectual, and I agree with you. But that's also what the people who've criticized the actions of the Barrett faculty right, Well, two rights done. don't make, you know, two well, wrongs well, don't well, make a and right. That, and, and, that's, and that's why this is a larger discussion about how we're going to conduct a free speech environment. The real difficulty with free speech is that you have to defend the free speech of people who you disagree with. Yeah, I mean, famously, the ACLU defended the Ku Klux Klan, right. right? Now, I'm Jewish. I'm certainly not jumping out front to defend the KKK. But that was the right thing to do because it guarantees my ability to say pretty much anything I want to say. Right? And that runs contrary to what so what, what is happening here. So I think we all agree, and that's not what happened here. To your point... 
it's the uh, to me the greatest expression of, of free speech is tolerance. It's tolerance of other speech that well, you may not or, like. Or to to go attend this event, then hold your own event and counter it. If that's what you feel you need to do. Which is what they did outside prior to the event. No, they sent a private letter outlining uh, why the college should disassociate themselves from the event. Um, they took, a, I guess, a vote of no confidence in the leadership of T.W. Lewis Center. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they didn't want this event to go on. And um, they highlighted in their letter why uh, and they outlined why these speakers we will continue to disagree on the issue of them not wanting the event to happen but but, but with all of this so we can disagree on that one point but other than that, I mean, you, you did say on Twitter you we were hilariously wrong, that Ann Atkinson was hilariously wrong. So other than that one point of disagreement, which is between whether they're saying it shouldn't be part of Barrett versus it's the broader ASU, which I would call quibbling, but but you say is significant, okay. Because the Barrett, we, the Barrett faculty is speaking for well, but, all of the But then where were we hilariously wrong? And, and for example, has portrayed this as a very harmonious relationship that all of a sudden was disrupted. And it was harmonious with the previous dean, Mark Jacobs. Uh, People I've talked to uh, suggest that that was not the case, that Jacobs did not uh, look very carefully at the donor agreement. And Lewis was very good. Mr. Lewis was very good at structuring uh, donor agreements very carefully so that he continues to have influence. uh, there are reports that, in fact, Anne was not the choice of Barrett to head Lewis, but rather was Mr. Lewis's choice forced upon them uh, with the uh, suggestion that perhaps if Mr. Lewis uh, did not get his way, he might pull his. Okay, okay, but, but, but we don't we don't have any. Well, I'm just saying there's a longer institutional. Well, that that may be, but none of that's qualifies as being hilariously wrong. I mean, what what was hilariously wrong? Well, it got your attention if I said hilariously. Oh yeah, absolutely it did. But I mean, this is where this is where I Are you intimately involved in the contracts or are you part of No, no. That's just that I, I watch this I watch this as an outsider. I Okay, so you don't have any direct information. No. No, and I, I that's why I think I as part of the investigation I'd like to see these contracts. I'd okay. like to see the agreements. What I, so uh, I mean, the just, harassment, the harassment of the Barrett faculty and the but, call. But so wait, would, wait, wait, Sam. So you're you. just repeating hearsay. No, you don't I, have I, any... I, I, I'm repeating. A lot of this is hearsay at this point. Those student reports were redacted and reformed by the person who gave them. That That's hearsay. So let's. OK, uh, well, I'm glad you just admit that you're repeating hearsay. That's fine. No, well, I, the, I, that's I, actually I, witness testimony versus hearsay, which is third party, uh, second hand. And but, but, so, but until I see the original document with names redacted to protect the students, I'm going to go, what? I'm not quite sure what's going but, but on. But what here. is that? I still don't get who. That's that's a separate issue with the students said. We have the professor's signatures on a letter where they outline right. why they think that this event um, should be labeled, you know, or sh- should be stopped, frankly. And I think uh, you're right. They did it in a way where they just kind of. They knew where the line the was line from what, the previous yeah. event, from exactly. when they got when they got pushback from Michael Crow, and, and, and that brings up a different point which we haven't touched on, which is that Crow is always a day late and a dollar short coming to these things. It's always down the road, and his response is is never up front to to stand behind these type of events and say no, 
before this gains any traction, before it gets to the point that people start getting fired, I'm going to stand on the front line and say, a, say we do have a commitment to the Chicago, uh, Chicago University free speech commitment. It, it seems always late. And this is the for a lot of conservatives, this is a fundamental issue right now with universities mm-hmm. that they will put out these these broad statements that they're committed to free speech. But when the rubber meets the road, it's the they they do not stand behind it. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that that that's how this has been portrayed in various uh, venues, et cetera. Um, uh, and, and the reporting. But on how this, is the portrayal different than the reality? I mean, the reality, isn't that the, the reality? The, the reality is the event came off. It was successful. You've already heard this. this yeah, no, the event line. the event did happen. Okay, and so actually what then interests me is post-event, what actions were taken uh, by various actors um, and, and what happened. Mr. Lewis pulls his donation, as he has every right to do. That means... Um, Ann Atkinson no longer has a funded position because that's a soft money position. Uh, she contends that she has donors. ASU contests that. Well, but she wasn't given any time to do it. I, I, I mean, I, I've tried to raise money before. You can't raise a million dollars in a day. I, I, I know, but I, I, I understand that. I'm saying let's have that investigation take place. Um, we know that um, the Barrett faculty were targeted by both Charlie's a professor watch list, and by um, Dennis Prager calling for uh, their firing and since then. So? Uh, if you're going to fire somebody for their freedom of expression, then you violated free speech. But, but see, that was just his opinion on a radio show, and that was after the fact. Well, also, also no, though. A, no, actually, that is not after the fact. He made his first protest on February 3rd on his podcast. Well, after, so. after, but it was after the letter came right, out. Right, that's what I'm saying. And, and I mean, I'm saying. Where we, this was already under attack, and, and he's responding. And now you have a state senator who headed that um, hearing committee who also called for the firing of faculty. So? If you I, I, fire faculty on, for the expressions, it. if you fire faculty for their expressions of opinion, then you're violating free speech. No, no, no. That's the action. I'm asking, so what? Someone said that. Well, then, so what? So that's all that happened with the Barrett faculty. They made a request. The event went on. No, they. they what they did was try to disrupt the event, and what they did you was try I, to walk. No, no. We. I'm just reading the language. They call these individuals, and I want to get your opinion. Uh, white nationalist provocateurs. Do you agree with that? I and referencing I, I Charlie Kirk what, and Dennis Prager. Do you agree that I, these two are white nationalist provocateurs as outlined in the letter signed by the majority of faculty at the Barrett at the Barrett College? From what I've listened to about Charlie and Dennis, they often say things about American history which I would take issue with. Okay. Okay. Would I have used that language? No. All right. Um, But again, part of free speech is fighting for people who may use language of which you do not approve. Um, And so as much as you want to focus on that petition, the petition triggered so many other things that I think do address and raise concerns about how we're going to govern free speech on campus in the future. What are going to be the parameters, et cetera? 
Um, I, I guess that concerns me because I I am of an absolutist on free speech and I don't think it should be governed. I, I, I mean, and I, I knew it. I knew when I'd say govern, you'd go hmm. I, and I got that. And then that's why, on the other hand, Crow has endorsed this Center for American Institutions. Uh, uh, that's why there are people who are supporting this. Um, the criticism of the Barrett faculty, who you know are themselves in a way shining examples of free speech because they're there. And I've never heard. You know, another job I've had is run the university's uh, promotion tenure committees for the last level of review before it goes to the provost and the president's office. No one ever talked about anyone's political views. But but see, there's kind of, we're kind of blurring a couple lines because the, well, the, you, you, you don't have to talk about their political views when you weed them out with a diversity statement No, because some people who have been involved in this, their panel, their files went forward. And, I, you know, all I'll say is I've never heard a discussion about political views at that level at all or or saw it discussed in the files. Uh, so we can continue to talk about the narrow issue of the petition and you and I will go around in circles. It's, but it's not an it, it's not it's not narrow. I mean, it's really the crux of the issue, which is you have a, a, a letter signed by the majority faculty attacking the individuals, not attacking or talking about or offering a different opinion about what was presented at the event, but, well, but and, attacking and, and, the individuals personally, labeling them, um, dis- trying to discredit them and stifle speech mm-hmm. and trying to be disruptors and trying to stop these individuals from you know, expressing you know, the themselves. The only That's thing, Michelle that I agreed with that they said at all, and it wasn't really part of the letter, but but part of the discussion at that time, was I'm not sure what some of these folks have to do with health, wealth, and happiness. Now, I would disagree knowing more about them and their backgrounds. That would be a, a reasonable point to contest, right? Right. But, What's the but, nexus between right. the speaker and the, the, right. the event? and the event. But when these attacks, Michelle is exactly right. When you start out with saying that the reason this shouldn't be that this should be disassociated, that this should be cut out of, of our circle is because these people are X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And frankly, those, those contentions are not provable unless you come from a very specific mindset. And, and, they, and, they, and they list things that have nothing to do with the event and have everything to do with, I, I mean, other, instant, uh, uh, other situations and quotes that happened, uh, you know, it, in the past. So... Then you contest it by saying the Barrett faculty have incorrect understanding of the speakers or what they said, which which has been said that, you know, media matters is not exactly the most unbiased source if we're going for information like that. And I think and I think that was a really good point that I think you have to listen to. These people, I mean, because the, the media matters, media folks who we kind of back up on this media matters. A lot of this started, the letter was prompted by information sent out by Media Matters, which is a far left wing organization designed to promote uh, and help elect Democrats, essentially, is, is why it was founded to create a narrative to help elect more Democrats. So, fine, but a lot in a lot of their contentions are pulled so far out of context as to be absolutely ridiculous. But again, they weren't contesting why they're there or the ideas. 
they're contesting these people as individuals and saying they hold views we don't like. Therefore, we don't have, want to have any association with them or allow any association with them. Isn't that exactly the opposite of the way we should be treating academia? We agreed all the way to the last sentence. So we, we have a common narrative here at this point, which given how this discussion has been going on in the broader sense is, is an achievement. Well, no, that, and that's why we appreciate I, and, you being and, here. And, 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 and so I think that the way to push back against the petition is also to exercise free speech, which is what those three professors did, okay? This was not a, I hate to, you know, not because there was issues of publicity. A lot of, ASU's a big place. Lots of things are going on we have no idea about. I would not have known about this except, frankly, for, for Critchlow, uh, because I, I've known Don. Uh, I helped bring him to ASU. So, you know, if you're going to talk about me, that's a little different than Marxist radical. No, I, I feel like we need to answer questions, though. I, well, well, but you, but I, I've answered the questions that I, I can answer. You keep on asking me to defend a document that I did not author uh, and, and to decide where the charges made well, in so, the document but, are true. But so, okay. You went on Twitter and claimed that there were falsehoods being made and there was a lack of understanding and parts of the story might, was uh, not and, discussed. And, and Yeah, I, I think, for example, the harassment, rather serious harassment of the Barrett faculty and calls for their termination, that also brings in the issues of free speech. Like how? If you speak up, you get fired. That's just what one person said. Why no, can't no, they say no, that? No, no, you're, it's you're, not, you no, keep it's talking not, about if that's acted upon. Person. It's not one person. So what? someone okay, said Okay, wait that? a minute. Excuse me. Well, when I, a I, state senator says it at a hearing, I pay attention. Really? Don't you pay attention to what Anthony— As a, state, as a former state senator, I, you, I, I, do, I don't— do, do, do. I, I was about to say, as a former state senator, there's no way you pay attention every time one of your colleagues opens their mouth. And says and demands someone be fired. Okay, well, then, if you, you, if you want to say that Anthony Kern— is you know just talking out of his hat that's fine that that that's fine but the the point but the point is why can't he why can't anyone why can't these individuals uh, attend an event and talk about health wellness and happiness without the faculty trying to interfere with the event and try to stop it we're going to continue to go around Michelle but time I, and again and I'm saying the faculty said you can have your event, but we don't want to be touched by this anymore. We don't want to be associated by this anymore. We do not want to have Barrett, the Honors College, presents Charlie Kirk and Dennis Prager. That was the crux of their complaint. So, so, so and, and I, I, I do, and, 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 I, look, and, and, I, I don't want to so, go back around in circles. We've been on this long enough. I do feel like that is a bit of a cop out. I mean, I feel like what they did was a very fine line that they knew where the line was. And they, they, they tried to walk that line. But the fundamental issue for me is that there is this underlying attitude that has pervaded a large portion of faculty at universities, which is anti-free speech and which, quite frankly, is very totalitarian in their instincts and in how to prevent that speech. OK, then we can either from this event say, OK, let's step back for a moment people on both sides and people in the middle and say, okay, how do we want to do this in the future? 
okay? We could, we could stop this now. And, and the conversation going on now I don't think is productive for anybody um, because there is a lot of labeling. There is a lot of name calling. It's on both sides. We could say it's faculty behaving badly. But, I mean, this, this is not just one side. There's, there's a larger controversy going I, I on. Do, I, I don't, really, I I don't do, see that. I'm sorry. Well, I, well, I, I, I make a distinction. I, I make a distinction like Michelle does, I think, because one is a group of faculty at that institution, and the mission of the institution should be the open pursuit of knowledge, right? right. I mean, basically, it's the fundamental mission of every university should be the open pursuit of knowledge. So they, have, they should have a commitment to that. Do I expect radio listeners to always have that exact same level? No. 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 And so that when you're saying people are calling them, you know, who listened to Charlie on the radio and he said something and then people are sending emails or calling. I don't hold I'm not going to hold them to the same standard. I do a professor. That professor is in some sense on the public payroll and they're there to enhance the overall mission of the university. And when we're failing from that, that is a very different thing than some state senator or some radio listener calling in and saying, saying something on on the same level, even when they're saying the same thing, the role makes it different. I understand what you're saying. And I, look, I just wrote a piece for the con- uh, conversation, which was non-argumentative, didn't give a point of view at all, just a descriptive issue about the Tuberville holds. And I've already gotten hate mail. And I'm going, well, where is this from? So Hate mail is part of this. They, they hate. What, what is that? What is the point? The point is we all get that didn't ask for my job. That didn't ask that that I be fired. That didn't threaten my family. That didn't threaten to have CPS come into my household. Um, part of and, and you know when you're threatened to be fired, no, you're not fired yet, but you're state employees, and now you've got a state senator calling for you to be terminated. Yeah, we might want to take a step back. I, at, I, mean, at, I think we're point. just we're, we're p- putting blame somewhere else. I mean, the real focus is that the professors intervened and tried to stop an, an event. You continue that's, to say because that. Because that's the point, and you keep ignoring it, and, and you wanted to opine on Twitter. But then when we invite you here, you you can't seem to defend the position. That's what I'd love. Defend why the professor sh- should be allowed to interfere with an event sponsored by a college to bring guest speakers. No, I said that the, the story was incomplete. That okay. is the, that's the story. Well, you and I then disagree. So, so, you know, Michelle, to have, I think, a better conversation, we probably, you've said your piece on this. I've said my piece on this. There really are other things we, we might want to explore that I think are more fruitful and, frankly, more pertinent because it's... I, I, think, I think there are a lot of broader issues attached to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I think fundamentally when you're talking about people on the right related to this... What we're looking at is this being a symptom of a much larger disease. And so the symptom itself is bad, but the disease is the concern. The the symptom goes away if you address the disease. And I think there is not much evidence at this point that universities, including ASU, are taking that disease seriously enough. And that's – we can get into all of that, and I think it would be a great – piece for another podcast another mm-hmm. program because we're, we're deep into this right. one um and i want to thank brooke simpson professor at asu for coming on with us uh challenging us here a little bit michelle again always lovely to have you in the studio uh folks be sure if you are not subscribed 
This is the easiest thing in the world. Literally click one button and we will come to your email box every single week when Breaking Battlegrounds comes out. Thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate you. We're back on the air again next week.